Good morning, church family and friends. Uh, first off, uh, I will say that evidently our stream quality this morning is low, <coughs> evidently. <coughs> so if I buffer while I'm preaching, just let it be yet another reminder that this is not the way things are supposed to be. The Lord is maybe even teaching us to wait, even to hear a sermon this morning as we deal with these things. Uh, but regardless, God's grace has sustained us uh, another week. Uh, yes, our lives are far from what they were six weeks ago. Yes, we still have to settle for pixels over presence. And the pain of the moment should hurt. Uh, prolonged separation should sting. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God created us to be embodied souls, real physical people meeting and interacting with real physical people. And that's true for everyone, whether you are a Christian or not. And there's even a deeper yearning for Christians. When God reconciles us to himself through Jesus, he brings us into his eternal, beloved, cherished family. And the local church is the expression of that family. And so one of God's greatest gifts to his people is corporate worship. The time when we gather together, we pray together, we hear each other sing, we look into each other's eyes, we hear the preaching of God's word. And a video, no matter how good or how poor the quality is, cannot mimic those things. So our worship is a participatory response to the glorious acts of redemption as we gather together to remember and rehearse the goodness of the gospel that God bought us through Christ and brought us to himself through Jesus. And yet right now we can't gather. We're reduced to screens by stay-at-home orders Add that on top of all the other struggles pressing in on us, and it's hard. Some of our own church members have battled COVID-19. Family members of those in our church have or are battling the virus. Jobs have been lost. Hours in pay have been reduced. The stress of working at home while homeschooling young children only adds to the tension. Savings accounts shrivel up while uncertainties pile up. And for the kids, you're stuck at home with your parents. You can't even play with your friends. That's not fun. That's not even to mention the tragedies and hardships that come to us apart from a pandemic. Unexpected deaths. We had those in our church the past couple of months. Chronic and acute medical illnesses unfulfilled godly desires, relational instability, the daily pressures of life. And if it's not us personally, it's a dear family member or friend who's going through the struggle. And as we saw last week, as Nathan said, we want it all to end. And that's a good desire. But this is where God has us. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. And suffering, unlike anything else, shines a spotlight on how powerlessness we really are to control everything we desire to control. Pain awakens us to our need 
for the Lord's help. It compels us. Times like this compel us to cry out to God. And we're not the first to do so. Uh, So for the past 32 days, dozens of people from our church have jumped on a Zoom call each morning to briefly meditate on one of the Psalms. We started with Psalm 1 and have just been going one after the other, working through. Tomorrow is Psalm 33, 8 a.m., join us. And if you're not familiar with the, the Psalms, it's a book of the Bible. It's a collection of 150 poems or songs. And like the rest of Scripture, the Psalms are radically God-centered, pointing us to the person, the work, and the worth of Jesus Christ. But they also, in a unique way, capture real human experience. And we've seen the Psalms leave little room for fake, impotent, shallow Christianity. The Psalms are raw and honest, sometimes uncomfortably so. We, like, can you say that? They're filled with heart-gripping emotion and God has made us to be emotional beings and so the Psalms capture the inmost parts of our soul. The Psalms give language to every season of the soul. It's been said, the Psalms not only speak to us, the Psalms speak for us. In this precious book, God meets us where we are. And this morning, we will give our attention to Psalm 42. So we encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. I'm gonna pray for us before I read the text. God, you are glorious, you are magnificent. We thank you for your precious word as it points us to your precious son. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do this morning. Help us see and savor Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Psalm 42, hear the word of God. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waters, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of God, beloved. And there are at least, at least two lessons for us in this psalm. 
Uh, lesson one, cry out honestly to God. Lesson two, hope confidently in God. Uh, but before we look at those, I think it would do our soul well just to take a moment and be comforted by the fact that this psalm is even in the Bible in the first place. The first thing I want to do is just, just be comforted. Uh, while there are plenty of psalms that express the highs and joys of praise, there, there are numerous psalms that exude delight and thanksgiving, there are also dozens and dozens of psalms, like Psalm 42, that take us to the depths of sorrow. Psalms like this give us the space to linger under dark clouds with confused hearts as we wonder where God and his mercy might be. Uh, psalm 42 isn't unique. At least one-third of the psalms are what we call laments. In other words, out of the official songbook of God's people, every third song is in the minor key. In the Psalms, we see God's people declare their distress, their sorrow, their loneliness, their affliction, their grief, their mourning, their fear, their dismay. They don't hesitate to confess they are consumed with anguish, worn out with groaning, overcome with trouble, in desperate need, and lost in utter darkness. The, the Psalms teach us that, that weeping and wrestling are intimate ways of fellowship with God as we navigate the brokenness and the beauty of this world. As one pastor says, he says, to cry is human, to lament is Christian. What's the difference? Well, to cry is to just be sad and in pain. It can be self Centered. Its grand desire is just to move on from pain. But to lament is different. Lament is the process of not just moving on from our pain, but moving in our pain to the promises of God. A lament uh, is a weary cry of a, of a heart struggling to understand the seeming paradox of our current misery and the Lord's abundant mercy. Uh, to use the language from Last week, Romans 8, to lament is to groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the Lord to fulfill his promises. For my non-Christian friends, I'm not sure if this is what you expected when you tuned in this morning. Maybe you, you tuned in last week and on Easter we're talking about suffering and now today we're talking about pain and lamenting. You're like, really? Well, what I hope you see is the, the Bible, the Christian life is both realistic and optimistic. It's, it's realistic about the trials of this life. We, we don't have to be fake. So, so the Christian faith is, is not like a Barbie doll. It's, it's not airbrushed with perfection and a plastic smile. That's not what the Christian faith is. It's realistic about the trials of life, but it's also optimistic because it provides the hope, the longing that we all desire. So we don't have to be scared and afraid. And so as we walk through this psalm, let me invite you to, to see how it speaks into your life and the life you desire. So the Christian faith reminds us we don't have to be so shallow that we deny anything is wrong. And we don't have to sink so deep because everything is wrong. No, the Christian faith, like the psalmist here, helps us avoid those two ditches. The ditches of shallow or sinking, the ditch of living in denial or being driven to despair. Did you notice as we walk through this psalm how the psalmist moves back and forth between lamenting and hoping? Lamenting and hoping. Look there, verses one through four, we see the troubled soul in pain. Tears are his food. Then in verse five, 
Why are you cast down? Why are you turmoil? Hope in God. The psalmist moves from pain to promise. But then look at the very next words in verse six. My soul is cast down within me. Yet by the time we get to verse eight, the psalmist is back to thinking about the Lord's steadfast love. Turmoil to trust. Now we're back in verse nine. And we're back in pain. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And the final verse, 11, is the same as the refrain. Hope in God, I shall again praise him. Honest cry to hopeful confidence. See, lamenting is this process of moving in our pain to promise. And it isn't a neat, linear path. It's messy and erratic. It's back and forth. And here's the other thing. It lasts more than a few verses or even more than one psalm. Drop your eyes down in your Bible to Psalm chapter 43, verse Five, you'll notice the same refrain that's found in verse 42. In other words, this psalmist is still struggling. And if you were to keep reading and you read on to to Psalm 44, you would eventually end up at verse 24. And the people together are now crying out. They say in verse 24 of Psalm 44, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Christian brothers and sisters, be comforted. God has preserved these prayers in scripture for our good. Our gracious Lord did not feel the need to edit these honest prayers out of the Bible. And he didn't just give us one example as if it's like this isolated, uncommon experience. No, he's gracious. In fact, remember the superscription of this psalm. To the choir master. In other words, this psalm has been written to be sung as a corporate worship song. It's not an isolated incident of a select few. It's a common occurrence that can linger for some time. God's not embarrassed by honest prayers of desperation. God doesn't say, uh, I don't wanna be identified with people like that, so I'm gonna edit those out of the scriptures. Now Psalm 42 reminds us that God, God is the God of those who come to him, not with polished Speech, not with plastic smiles, but with poverty of spirit. And that's what we need to come to God. Not perfect works or religious deeds, but desperation that he's our only hope. We cannot earn a relationship with him. We cannot be good enough so God will give us a little boost when we're in trouble. And Jesus can't be reduced to an insurance policy that we add to our otherwise Christless life. Uh, If that describes you, you're trying to earn to God, you just added a little bit of Jesus. Can I invite you to turn from your efforts and trust in Christ? If you're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, if you've just tried to add a little bit of Jesus so you might get the benefits of Christ without worshiping him, can I humbly say to you, the precious promises of Psalm 42 and of all the Bible are not yours to claim. I know that might sound hard, but there's good news. See, we don't have to earn our way or climb our way to God. In fact, we can't. He's too holy and beautiful and good and glorious. But he makes his way down to us. 
and he does so in the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus Christ reveals to us the heart of God, holy and humble, gracious and the essence of everything that is loving and good. And all who come to the Father by trusting in Christ the Son, his life, death, resurrection, are God's beloved children. This is good news. And God's disposition toward his children, the way God most naturally looks at his children is not with a pointed finger of rebuke, but open arms to receive. That's our God. He's near the brokenhearted and those crushed in spirit, Psalm 34. He loves us. Get this, beloved. He loves us so much. He keeps our tears in a bottle. Psalm 56, verse eight. See, for some of you, Psalm 42 isn't just words on a page, but a reality in your life. You're wounded, you're hurt, your soul is cast down by a constant pummeling of life's trials. Take comfort, brothers and sisters. Be comforted. God is not automatically displeased or disgusted with you because you might be downcast. He's a good father in heaven who wants you to come to him in his pain, in your pain. And, and kids, realize that you can go to God when you're sad. When your life just feels crummy, you can go to God. And if you don't know how to do that, ask your, your mom or your dad, dad, how do I go to God when I'm sad? See, all of us need to realize that for the good of our troubled soul, God inspired this psalm that we might be comforted. So during this time, no matter what you're facing, pandemic related or otherwise, be comforted by these words of God because they take us to the graciousness of God himself. And as we do that, we'll be well positioned to cry out honestly to God and hope confidently in God. So lesson number one from the song, cry out honestly to God. Look again at verse one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This man is in a dire situation. His, his soul is panting and thirsting. This is not about desire, but desperation. The picture here is that kind of like of a, of a desert. The sun is beating down, no water in sight. The slow agony of drought is shriveling up his soul from the inside. You hear the panting of his soul. He's a spiritual asthmatic. Verse three tells us tears are his food. Not just sometimes, but day and night. See that in verse three. The pain persists. The desperation prolongs. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. The moon comes out. Tears still flow. In verse five, he describes his soul as cast down and that turmoil within him. Verse six, he says, my soul is cast down. Verse nine, God, why have you forgotten me? Unless we forget, verse 11, he says again, his soul is cast down and turmoil within him. Uh, no candy-coated language here to mask the desperation of this man's soul. No pietistic language trying to minimize his pain. And, and why is he in pain? Why is this man in pain? Well, we don't know exactly. 
but I see at least four reasons assaulting his soul. Maybe some of these will, will resonate with, with you. First, God just feels absent. As you read his words, you, you feel his yearning for God, yet God's presence isn't near. He pants, he thirsts. And in verse two, he asks, when shall I come before God again? Verse nine, why have you forgotten me? The psalmist is lamenting God's apparent absence. His soul is splintered. He desires to feel closeness and intimacy with God, but he doesn't, and it hurts. Ultimately, he knows God has not forgotten him. But his feelings don't map onto that reality. See, our feelings sometimes are real, even if they're not always true. And that often hurts. Second, verse four, we see that this man is unable to gather with God's people for corporate worship. And this burdens his soul. He, look, look at verse four. He longingly remembers how he, he used to lead and he used to go to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, but right now he can't do that. It's amazing. Verse six tells us he's far away from Jerusalem. He's exiled, Mount Mazar, Hermon, a distant place. Maybe he's, he's not at a stay at home order, he's at a stay away order. And he can't come gather with God's people. Sound familiar, beloved? And this burdens his soul. He knows what we know. There is no substitute for the grace of corporate worship. When we can't gather together to sing, pray, listen to the preaching of God's word and fellowship, it burdens our soul. Third, he understands that his trouble is under the sovereign hand of God. Look at verse seven. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, at all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Do you notice the your in that verse? See, the psalmist has good theology. He understands nothing comes into his life that doesn't first pass through God's sovereign hand. Yet instead of drinking from that, that, that trickling stream that he wants to drink from and be refreshed, he feels like he's drowning under a violent waterfall and it's God's waterfall. You feel the tension in his soul. God's sovereignty makes deliverance more problematic, but also more possible, and this twists him up. It's though he's lamenting, and he's saying, God, I know you're in control, and I know you're not mean, but it doesn't feel like that right now. See, God's sovereignty comforts and confuses him at the same time, and this troubles his soul. Fourth, his enemies are taunting him. We see that in verse three and verse 10. The critics of his life look at his circumstances and ask, it's not going so well for you, is it? Where's your God? Those around him are trying to get him to question his faith and deny his God. So take all of that. The internal melancholy, the apparent absence of God, the unfortunate circumstances, the external oppression, and it brings pain. One of these things would be enough. And yet here he's under all of them in some way. And so what can this man do? What, what can we do? Well, he cries out to God. 
Do you see that? Verse one, my soul pants for you, O God. Verse two, my soul thirsts for God. Verse five, hope in God, my God. Verse six, I remember you. That's in reference to God. Verse eight, he speaks of the Lord's steadfast love. Verse nine, I say to God, my rock. See, repeatedly, the psalmist cries out to God. I count 20 plus references to God in this psalm. Objectively, the psalmist knows God. And he knows him personally. My God. And he knows God has rescued him. Notice the refrain. He says, God of my salvation. He knows he needs to be saved. He knows that only God can save him. And he has. But he doesn't feel the warm and fuzzies but he knows his feelings don't change the fact of who God is and what God has done. See, his his head has the right theological answers about God, but his heart can't always keep up with warm affections for God. And he's honest about it. So recognize, beloved, this is part of the process. Begging God for your heart to catch up with your head and being honest about it when it's not the case. That's part of this process. There's no shame in that. That's where the psalmist is. He cries out, my God, to use the language of verse four, he's pouring out his soul. He's not over in some corner, abstract self-examination by himself. He's exposing the core of his being. He's, He's confessing his doubts, desires, fears, and hopes to God and to others. He's writing this down and sharing it, remember. So here's what we can learn from this. We, we, we don't have to feel like we're better before we go to God. If you wait until you feel like you want to go to God before you go to God, you might wait a really long time. Don't load yourself an extra burden of having to be okay before calling out to Christ. Be honest with God. He can handle it. Here's the thing. God is not afraid of the dark. He can handle our emotions. Now, let me be clear here. This does not mean we can say and do whatever we want and justify it how we feel. Our pain does not give us a trump card over everything else. Even in our pain, God is still God and we cannot usurp his authority and goodness. So yes, we can complain sinfully, and yes, we can be self-absorbed and selfish, throwing our own pity party as if the world revolves around us. That is true. And if that happens, or when that happens, we need to confess and repent. That's not what the psalmist is doing. So what's the difference, you ask, between crying sinfully and crying out honestly. Well, notice something critical here. Notice he's crying out to God, not about God. The posture of his soul does not drive him away from God in bitterness, but to God in brokenness. See, he's not demanding answers with a clenched fist. He's asking questions with an open heart. The focus is on God ultimately, not himself. And there's the difference. Who's at the center? 
So Psalm 42 is not giving us permission to be selfish, but it is giving us permission to be honest and cry out to God. So if you're feeling downcast, have you done that? Have you gone to God in prayer? Have you told him how you feel? Perhaps you even need to write it down. I know that helps me. When, when, when I'm downcast, I will simply take out my journal and like I do every morning, begin to pray like, God, I just don't feel good right now. You feel distant. Write it down. Uh, and if you don't know what to say, use the words of scripture. Take Psalm 42 and let it be your guide. If that doesn't work, turn around to Psalm 77. It's kind of even a little bit darker. And if that doesn't work, go to Psalm 88, perhaps the darkest of all, and just let it guide you. And even when you can't personally cry out to God, borrow the voice of a fellow brother or sister. Or children, borrow the voice of your mom or dad. Let someone know you don't have to hide. Let's be a church that regularly cries out to God with and for each other. And I just want to say, I praise God for how you do this. You care for one another. We, we, by God's grace, we've created a space where it's okay to not be okay and a place where we don't have to stay that way. It's God's grace at working with us. So we, may we continue to be honest with one another in our community groups, our discipling relationships. May we help each other wrestle with God and cry out to him in seasons of our troubled soul. Unless you think this is only for the weak, immature Christians, let me invite you to think again. While we don't know exactly who wrote this psalm, we do know that he was mature in his faith, that he was a leader. See that in verse four. This man used to lead corporate worship. He used to go to the house and lead it. Uh, to use our language, maybe he was a pastor or a deacon, a, a godly man. And yet he finds himself with a downcastle. Uh, all you have to do is read the Bible just a little bit or just look at a cursory look at church history. And you'll see that some of the most godly people are ones who battled depression, downcast, troubled souls. And lest we forget Jesus, who himself cried out, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Yet there was no sin in Jesus, and I think it's safe to say that he was pretty mature and godly. And so can I plead with you to not hold yourself or others to a higher standard than Christ? Let this psalm teach you to be patient with yourself, to recognize the mere presence of sorrow or downcastness does not automatically equate to immaturity or God's displeasure. Let this psalm teach you to be compassionate with others. As others wrestle with a downcast soul, listen. Don't always look for an immediate fix. I don't feel like you have to hunt for, for sin and immediately correct every imprecise, imprecise statement. Are there times when we need to provide exhortation and correction? Yes, there is, absolutely. But don't let it always be the first thing you say to somebody who has a downcast soul. In the midst of sorrow and discouragement, all of us say things that make no sense, that might be theologically imprecise at the moment. But it's not helpful to be one of 
Job's dumb, dumb friends and add stupidity on top of their troubled soul. So let this psalm give us language even as we enter into the sorrows of others as they wrestle with a troubled soul. So in the midst of our pain, let's be a people who cry out honestly to God. And let's not end there. We must also hope confidently in God. Lesson two, hope confidently in God. Verse five. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Notice where the psalmist places his hope. In God. His, His great desire is not a change of circumstances. His deepest yearning isn't for comfort or a return back to the normal routines of life. I'm sure as much as he wants that. He's groaning inwardly, waiting eagerly. That's hope. Groaning, yet waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises. And and how do we do this? How do we hope in God? We do what the psalmist did. We talk to ourselves and we remember. Notice in verse five and 11, the psalmist is asking himself questions. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he starts to tell himself something. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's It's as though he moves from listening to himself and thinking about himself to talking to himself. Uh, to use some language familiar maybe to our church, he's preaching the gospel to himself. Not just once, but repeatedly, daily, several times a day. Uh, in a sermon on this passage, the, the great pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, we must learn what the psalmist learned. We must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Have you ever realized that so much unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So this man stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. Then you must go on and remind yourself of who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do, end quote. Like the psalmist, we need to train, not just try, but train ourself, to ask ourselves questions in the moments of despair. See, too often, if you're like me, too often we're too quick to give absolute authority to what we feel. Emotions are good gifts from God, but they can't always be trusted. So what if, what if we began to distrust the, the certainties of our despair? What if we began to distrust the certainties of our despair? Or, or what if we didn't think about ourselves as much as we talked to ourselves and invited others to do the same for us? See, we may hear our heart say, it is hopeless. But we argue back. Well, soul, that depends on what you're hoping in. Self, what are you hoping in? Are you waiting on God and his promises? Are you hoping in God as he's revealed himself in the Bible? Or are you downcast because you've recast him in the image as you imagine? What are you doing, soul? 
We may think to ourselves and hear our hearts say, God doesn't care. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. But we argue back. Why, O oh soul, do you believe this is what God is like? Did God not enter the brokenness of this world in the person of Jesus Christ and experience all the pains we face? Was Jesus not thirsty and hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed? Does he not know what it's like to be lonely and troubled in his soul? Does he not know what it's like to face temptations and trials? Does he not know what it's like to stand at the tomb of a friend and weep? We may hear our hearts say, I have sinned and messed up too much for God to love me. But we argue back and we ask ourselves, why, O oh soul, do you think like this? Are not my sins and weaknesses the very resume items that qualify me to come to Christ? Didn't Jesus say he came for sinners and not the self-righteous? Wouldn't it be true, soul, wouldn't it be true for my sins to condemn me again, for me to fall out of the loving embrace of the Father, that Christ would be, have to be pulled down out of heaven and put back in the grave? Isn't that true, oh soul? We may hear our hearts say, I'm too unclean and have too much baggage for God to actually want anything to do with me. Nobody knows me fully and loves me truly. Why would God be any different? But we argue back and we say, why, oh soul, do you think that's true? Is not the cleanliness of Christ more contagious than your uncleanliness? Isn't Jesus the same now as he was on earth? And on earth, didn't he have compassion toward those who were taken advantage of? Wasn't he tender toward the most vulnerable? See, we have to talk back to ourselves and invite others to talk to us as well, to remind us of what is true, despite even what we feel sometimes. The psalmist asks himself questions and tells us tells hope in God. Then notice what he says. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He has a confident hope that he will praise God again. Now that does not mean his life is altogether absence of trust and praise at this moment. It just means it's more like a flickering candle right now and he desires so much more. As dark as it seems, there's hope no matter what we face. We don't, we don't wishfully hope in God. We confidently hope in God. But why? Why are we able to speak like that? How can we speak confidently? Well, by remembering. Remembering God's steadfast love. Again, verse six, he says, his soul is downcast. So what does he do? Therefore, I remember you. He remembers God. Remembering is not a passive thought, but an active exercise. It's what he's training himself to do. In verse seven, he remembers God's sovereignty. And then in verse eight, look what he says. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. No matter what happens to him, the psalmist knows the Lord commands his steadfast love. And that 
term steadfast love is God's covenant love for his people, his unbreaking, always and forever, never giving up, never diminishing, heaven purchasing love. And every Christian has a record of God's steadfast love. This is God's selfless love that he promises he will save all those who come to him through Jesus Christ. And we know this promise is sure because Jesus did exactly what he said he was gonna do. He lived a sinless life, worshiping God supremely, loving neighbor sacrificially. He died on the cross, not for his sins, but for the sins of all who would trust him. And then he rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death forever. Therefore, we are confident because the tomb is empty. We remember God's steadfast love. We see and savor the heart of God himself. See, God's steadfast love reminds us not just of God's actions for us, but God's affection for us. Remember, beloved, God does not love us because there is a cross. Because there is a cross Excuse me, God doesn't love us because there is a cross. There is a cross because God loves us. Got that, beloved? God does not love us because there is a cross. There is a cross because God loves us. See, God's steadfast love reminds us God does not just want to forgive us. He wants us. Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That's the heart of Christ, to be with his people. Now Jesus sits in heaven as our advocate, our intercessor, our brother, and along with the Father, he longs to bring us into his presence. That's why he's gonna return soon to make everything sad untrue to bring heaven to earth that we might be in his presence forever with all of his people enjoying this world as it was always meant to be. Fully redeemed people worshiping a resurrected savior on a completely restored world enjoying the bliss of it all forever and ever and ever. That's our confident hope. As surely as our tears flow now, our feet will dance then. This is an expression of this man crying out, clinging to God. But more importantly, he knows that it's God clinging to him. That's where his confidence lies. God clinging to him. Think about it this way. When my daughters were a little bit younger, and we would go to the beach, how we'd wade into the ocean. And as we'd walk down that gentle sandy sandy slope to water's edge, they would instinctively reach up and grab daddy's hand. The waves would begin to crash on their little body and their grip would tighten. But a little little girl's grip, uh, not very strong. Ultimately, what kept my precious daughters safe was not their hold to daddy's hand, but daddy holding them in his hand. So it is with us and our heavenly father. To be sure, we cling to him as we trust in Christ. But our grip, 
is a two-year-old amidst the ways of life. But our Abba Father holds us. He will hold us fast. His grip never fails. It's as though in Psalm 42, the psalmist is saying, Lord, I'm trusting you to keep me trusting you. We do well to say the same. Lord, I'm trusting you to keep me trusting you. That's our confidence. So beloved, like the psalmist, let's, let's feel the pain of living in a broken world. As we navigate its brokenness and its beauty, let's feel the burden of not being able to gather for corporate worship. Let's, let's, let's be okay with, with being downcast sometimes and not even knowing why sometimes. Beloved, let's continue to create space in our church like this to weep. But let's not stop there. In our pain, let's remember God's promise that he commands his steadfast love and nothing can thwart his purposes, not even a worldwide pandemic. Hope in God, beloved, for we shall again praise him together, Lord willing, right here. And that will only be a foretaste of what awaits us in heaven. For my friends whose confidence in God comes from your own efforts, from your good deeds, let me encourage you to talk to the friend who, who gave you this link and just ask them. That pastor said, the Lord commands his steadfast love. What does that mean? How does that tell me about Jesus? And it's our prayer that as you hear that, you would behold the beauty of our all-sufficient Savior and you too would join us as we say, Lord, I'm trusting you to keep me trusting you. That's where we truly find hope for our troubled souls. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for your word. That it is soul penetrating and it is refreshing. That it cuts to the core yet provides hope. Give us grace to live in the reality of Psalm 42 and live in all of Psalm 42, the honest cry and the hopeful confidence. Give us the grace to repent when we throw pity parties and we're selfish in our downcast soul. Give us the grace to move in our pain to your promises, to look to Christ, knowing that he is good, he's sufficient. Holy Spirit, help us hope in God. For we know we shall again praise him. Whether that be here on earth, we know it'll be in heaven forever. Amen.